This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, I've got Dr. Spiegel with us, and we're talking about the Shepherd of Hermas, or Hermas. It'll be fun. We'll put the emphasis on the right syllable as we go. Stay tuned, it's going to be a great program. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, we've got a little bit of a change in pace because this is Thanksgiving week, and Michael Roundtree is out with his family, spending time with them. It's early on in the week, so we're able to get this content together. Michael is joining with me from the other side, uh, Michael Miller, uh, not Michael Roundtree. So we've got a great program uh, for you with Dr. Spiegel. If you, first time you're watching Remnant Radio, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Uh, maybe you've been watching for a while and you just want to stay connected with what we're doing. Uh, we, we release courses online. We do conferences. We do this content here on YouTube, and the best way to stay connected and get noticed with everything that we're doing because we're very busy is to jump into the newsletter. There's links in the description for that. You can subscribe to the newsletter and get updates when we're coming out with uh, video content like this, blogs, research, all of that great stuff can be found there in the email list. So I've got Dr. Spiegel with us. He is a frequent flyer. Uh, and I've got Michael Miller with us. Uh, before I introduce Dr. Spiegel Miller, uh, man, how was ETS? We just we just saw Dr. Spiegel like, oh, yeah. last week, which was kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, tell me some highlights and excited stuff that you saw at ETS. Oh, gosh. I don't know what the highlight... I mean, hanging out with you was a highlight. Uh, Aww, getting to meet with some shucks. of the scholars, ask questions. Uh, we ate a ton of Mexican food, which I just don't get very good Tex-Mex here in Colorado. So <laughs> we did that. Like I think we probably ate Mexican food four or five times. Uh, I was very oh, happy about I, that. I think it was like eight or nine times, bro. We ate so <laughs> much Mexican food. Oh, dude, yeah. And I'm actually, you know, here's the funny thing is I'm literally leaving right after we filmed this. I'm getting in the car, hopping on a plane to go to Austin, Texas to be with my um, my siblings and my mom in, uh, in Austin where we celebrate Thanksgiving. And then I'm coming out to Oklahoma next weekend. So I'll be there yeah. at Roundtree's church, then at your church. Yeah, do the rounds. Yeah, excited to have you. Dr. Spiegel, tell us about yourself and your ministry for people who aren't familiar with you. I know you've come on the show multiple times. Uh, We've talked about lots of different things uh, on the program. Help me. We did early church father stuff. We did stuff on artificial intelligence. You you wrote a fictional book that was was really exciting. Uh, But you've come on more than just those two times, haven't you? I'm missing one, I think. Yeah, I, uh, sorry. I wish I could remember. It was memorable, though. I promise. It was very, <laughs> it was very good. I we we wouldn't have you back on if it was a drudge. I promise. It was, it was good. Whatever <laughs> yeah, it was. Right. Yeah, we had some good conversations. I think. I think we actually at one point talked about um, briefly Shepherd of Hermas uh, while I was still working on the book. I believe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, hey, we've got at great content today. Tell us, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry mm-hmm. before we dive into the subject. 
Yeah, uh, so I've been teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary for going on 17 years now. Uh, My major area is in systematic theology and historical theology with an emphasis on the early church. And that's kind of where I geek out and spend my time in academia. Um, My scholarly work is mostly second century primarily. So Didache, Shepherd of of Hermas, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, and that Apostolic Fathers group. Um, And so the Shepherd of Hermas book is... uh, new translation commentary, which was um, several years in the making, and I'm very glad to have it out there for popular consumption. Yeah, I've got a physical copy of it. I also have the Kindle version. I didn't bring the physical copy to me to ETS, so I read through it uh, my last day there at ETS. I read through it uh, uh, what Saturday and Sunday as well, uh, just getting ready for our interview. Fantastic book, great uh, piece of literature. Uh, but for people who maybe aren't familiar and haven't picked up your commentary yet, which certainly they will by the end of the program, uh, but tell us a little about The Shepherd of Hermas. People who aren't familiar, we're a theology podcast. We, we talk about Christian theology. What is this Shepherd of Hermas book that you're talking about. That doesn't sound like scripture. I don't have that in between, you know, first and second hesitations. So tell us a little about this book and where it comes from and why it's important to Christian theology. Yeah, Shepherd of Hermas is, uh, yeah, most Christians probably haven't heard of it nowadays, but that wasn't the case in the second, third, fourth centuries beyond. Uh, In fact, in the Codex Sinaiticus, it was uh, added uh, along with books like Barnabas and um, uh, others after the book of Revelation. So it was uh, highly regarded, maybe even if not as canonical, but as very valuable, something we want to preserve and study and read. It appears in discussions of the early canon. So it was wildly, wildly popular in the early church. It um, it was written sometime between 90 and 140, and, and not meaning somewhere in there, but along that way. So it, it took about 50 years to write as it's come to us uh, in its current form, and it builds itself as kind of a combination of, of dreamlike visions that are uh, revelatory, usually um, related to eschatology and calling people to repentance, as well as a section called mandates, which are catechetical in nature. They're basic Christian instruction, how to, how to live the Christian life and live up to this commitment you've made. And then these parables at the end, which are somewhere between, between teachy and preachy and prophecy uh, and urging people to pull it together before the, before the last days arrive. I think that's kind of a summary of the thing. So it's, um, again, wildly, wildly popular, even though we may not be familiar with it today. Would you, uh, would you put this, Miller, you're, you're muted, my friend. Hey, would you say that uh, you said that it was written between 90 and 140, um, but that not not that it was written at one particular time, but actually compiled together yeah. between those 50 years. Does that mean that, that it was more than one author or can we have confidence that this is one person who is continuing to add an addendum to it? I'm going to preface what I say. Uh, with something that uh, I'm probably going to say several times in this <laughs> little interview here, <laughs> is scholarship is divided on this issue. Uh, I would say, that, so scholars over the last hundred plus years have made a case for multiple authorship and then a redactor or editor kind of pulling the pieces together later. And then, of course, they try to find contradictory elements in the either the theology or the style or whatever. Um, among Shepherd of Hermas scholars today, though, the tendency is toward seeing um, signs of unity, and it's probably a single author, and that's the view we take in the in the commentary, a single author writing and over the course of um, several decades, 
and then kind of pulling it together into a single collected work uh, toward the end of his life. I think that's the best approach. I mean, how should we use, uh, you know, this book? You know, we we could be doing a review right now on, you know, a Christian classic like Pilgrim's Progress or something, you know, uh, by C.S. Lewis, like the Chronicles of Narnia. And Christians can get around and we can talk about these books. And we're not saying that these books are infallible or inerrant, but they can be helpful. They can be useful as a tool in, in Christian thinking and in Christian theology. And they, they have great illustrations and lessons kind of built within that. So, so. When we look at this book, are we saying that this is helpful, that it is inherently Christian? That's one question that I have. But then the other question that I have is kind of tailing in on what Michael was talking about just now. If one guy, maybe not one guy, but maybe other guys are editing this thing, do we know what we have today as the Shepherd of Hermas is what they had early on in the first century? Um, like, is there enough copies of this thing? So, so one, you know, how is this useful for us today? How is it useful for people in the first century? And then two, is there enough widespread copies of this thing that we know that we actually have the book that they had, or is it something that's evolved over time? So the second question is um, kind of easy to answer. We, we can't be absolutely sure that what we have uh, in the in the edition, the critical edition, which is which means they've taken all of the manuscripts available and parts and pieces and holes, including translations, and kind of edited what they scholars regard as you know what what did the original shepherd of hermas look like i think we can be fairly confident that what we have is very 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 close to what was originally written but we can't be 100 percent sure so there is some um you got to put your thinking caps on as you're working through translation etc and i had to resolve some issues like that uh to be honest it was originally written in greek uh which was the, the the normal international language at the time um, but the last several chapters uh, have only come down to us in its Latin translation. So uh, it is it does have some deficiencies there, but we can be pretty confident that it reflects the text of the first or second century. And as far as its usefulness, uh, I mentioned briefly that some people did. They, they always highly regarded Shepherd of Hermas with a couple exceptions. But most people in the early church regarded it as Christian literature that was good to read and edifying because it did present good moral, you know, practical Christian living in a fun way of reading it. Like you, like Pilgrim's Progress or, or some of these allegorical writings that are, are part of church history. But it, um, a couple of people, a handful of people in certain places at certain times did actually quote it as inspired scripture as well. So it's one of these texts that sort of bordered between, is it inspired or is it inspirational? Do we revere it or we just respect it? And um, so it is kind of hard to say. We The church obviously landed in the right place in rejecting it as inspired writings. But even then, they highly regarded it for its its um, promotion of virtue and demotion of vice. Now, you see some, like in a lot of the epistles, Romans in particular, like there's just massive amounts of referencing to Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus tends to quote from Deuteronomy more than any other uh, Old Testament literature. Does the shepherd Hermes, did Hermes, I don't know how to say Hermes, like the Greek god. Sorry about I mean, that. Maybe, yeah, uh, maybe we should settle that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> does, does this author, does he quote the Old Testament or New Testament in the same way that you find in the epistles? He doesn't, which is very frustrating and weird 
for some people. Uh, he weaves in Old Testament and New Testament imagery, but then he does it in different ways. So it uh, doesn't necessarily seem to be beholden to the way Old Testament, New Testament use certain themes and motifs and images. Um, certain themes like double-mindedness, um, uh, repentance, uh, the church, building up the church, angels are all over the place. So you have all of these um it seems like they're using the same props and set and even some of the same actors as the old and new testaments do but it's a totally different script but um there are some hints and allusions to old testament and new testament books um like possibly echoes of revelation or uh, a book of hebrews definitely some of the gospels but as far as like what you see in the new testament where you have all of these cross references hyperlinks back to the old and and interpretation application of these things you just don't see that in shepherd of hermes which is very puzzling it may may be a result of it uh it being so early and new testament texts floating around still and not completely solidified in a in a collected canon but that doesn't explain why it doesn't incorporate old testament texts so it is one of the puzzling features of of the shepherd well i'd like to i'd like to know if we can maybe chat a little bit about the church fathers that wrote about this. You mentioned it just a minute ago. Some of them kind of called this scripture at times in your book. You mentioned Irenaeus, Clement, uh, I think of Alexandria, uh, and then Tertullian who write about this book. How did they speak of uh, this book? What was what was the way that they used it and how did they instruct it to be used uh, in the churches? Yeah, so par- particularly in Alexandria, you mentioned Clement of Alexandria, uh, People like Origen and Clement and some of the Alexandrian school uh, had a tendency to favorably quote from as authoritative um, several of the the apostolic fathers like the Epistle of Barnabas uh, uh, and Shepherd of Hermas. And um, but when I say some people in some places for a short period of time, that's primarily who I'm referring to. Uh, Irenaeus does quote it as uh, scripture, as a writing. Uh, particularly the early church fathers loved its very explicit statement that everything that exists was created out of nothing or that which does not exist. So a very clear, in fact, it is the earliest clear Christian articulation of, of creation ex nihilo quite explicitly uh, in, in the history of the church. So they, they grabbed onto that and quoted from it favorably. But the problem is couple twofold, the, the term scripture uh, that we translate scripture it just means writing and it isn't always clear whether they are saying inspired scripture or prophetic writing or authoritative writing or just a scripture a writing that is part of the the church's tradition so we do know that even Irenaeus whether he quoted it as canonical or not quoted it favorably whereas Tertullian western North Africa around the same time was not very fond of Shepherd of Hermes because uh, Tertullian was pretty strict moralist at the time and did not like shepherd of hermes saying that if a spouse cheats on you or breaks commits adultery they are to be allowed back once but not a second time he thought that one time uh was just licentiousness (laughs) it was just going to lead to he called the shepherd of hermes the shepherd of adultery so uh so you saw differing opinions on shepherd of hermes in the early church now, now you've used the adjective to describe Shepherd of Hermas, uh, Christian. Is is it Christian or is it Jewish? Or uh, I mean, is, is there anything in it that connects us to Jesus the Messiah? 
Yeah, you know, the name Jesus doesn't really appear. That's for sure. Uh, the Son of God does appear. And I, I have done some scholarly articles and chapters. And, and then the commentary itself does delve into its Christology. Uh, I don't, I can't discern anything that is contrary to what we would consider early second century Orthodox Christology. He appears to have a, a normal incarnational Christology. He doesn't really push. So not only is Jesus not mentioned, but Christ is not mentioned. Christos, which is the uh, Greek translation of Mashiach, the anointed one. It doesn't really emphasize that aspect too much. So I, I would, I would back away from saying it's, it's not Christian uh, just because it doesn't use the phrase Jesus Christ. It talks about the Son of God. It talks about his, his suffering, his incarnation, and all these kinds of things in, in a roundabout way. So I think it's it's perfectly fine there. It just avoids – it's really unexpected that he doesn't mention Jesus Christ by name. Some think that may be um, an, uh, uh, just kind of a – Nomine sacra kind of thing, which would imply a high Christology, the sacred name not to be uttered, uh, or it just may be part of the device. It does have signs of being Jewish Christian in some circles. People have seen that, um, especially the the complex uh, nature of the angelic realm. Uh, it's a very Jewish thing. You, you see that in some of the intertestamental Jewish, Second Temple Jewish literature. But um, I would say it's it's just kind of generic Christian. Well, let's let's unpack maybe the literary genre of this book. We kind of touched on it a couple of times. I think it'd be worth yeah. maybe explaining it because I want to talk about um, Hermas and, and his experience of being matured spiritually through these visions and and solimitudes or whatever they're called. You know, these different these different kinds of uh, evolutionary this journey of this character. But but we need to know what this story is. You know, I mentioned a moment ago, Pilgrim's Progress. Like, is this apocalyptic? It's got like these kind of apocalyptic judgment like things it's got a lot of sanctification language it's got a lot of hey you know uh you better be a you know a holy and righteous and set apart christian you know definitely dipped definitely dunked you know it's it's a big emphasis on baptism but but before we start reading it to be instructive or apocalyptic we just, we need to know what kind of piece of genre of literature this is how should people be reading this yeah, I think at the time it was really important to the author, especially, especially you see this in the early, the, the first four visions. There's this looming coming judgment. The, the great tribulation is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. This judgment is coming upon this earth and you better be ready and repent. Um, there's not much time left. So you have that, that, that apocalyptic um, warning that's kind of looming over the whole thing early on anyway. So it is apocalyptic in that sense. It's apocalyptic in the sense of, you know, the heavens are opened or he's transported into this, this um, spiritual realm or something, and he's receiving these revelatory visions. So it has all of those marks of apocalyptic characters, angels, and different things. So I think it's okay to put it in the general category of apocalyptic, but I love that you pointed out the there is a perinetic or practical purpose of the thing. Hermes himself and his family kind of is the stand-in for the every Christian, the the average run-of-the-mill Christian who is going through this process of spiritual growth. And so the visions are you know, apocalyptic in nature, pull yourself together, repent, be ready. And then having kind of overcome the challenges there, he's now going through uh, deeper uh aspects of Christian living. You see the elements of the two ways, catechesis, anybody who's read 
uh, Didoc here, Barnabas knows what that is, uh, avoiding the way of darkness and walking on the way of light. And then the parables tend to be even deeper. And so you have multiple layers of meaning of the parables, and that represents uh, a depth of both knowledge as well as character in order to understand uh, the deeper things of God. So we make a case that you're, you're tracing Hermes's, yes, spiritual growth and development, but he's a stand-in for anybody who's reading or hearing this as it's read or performed uh, in, a, in the, the, the church in Rome and becomes a stand-in, a, in a sense, for the church itself. So in, there's a second vision where Hermes is sort of portrayed as a prophet. Now, how does that relate with his role within the church and also his interactions with the elder lady? Yeah, so the elder lady is, um, it's hard to tell what she is. She identifies herself as the church, uh, but then she's pointing to a, you know, a tower as a sign of the symbol of the church. And so there's the symbology, it's very uh, fluid. It's hard to tell exactly what it is. Um, and, and are we supposed to take the woman literally as a, as an angelic being who's, who's playing a character here? Or is it, is she a, a fictional character? We don't, we don't really know. It's kind of hard, uh, to tell, but, um, yeah, he, he is, it's hard to tell what his role is in the church in Rome. I would say he seems to have been regarded as a prophet of sorts, um, and, you know, the, the regardless of what one's position is on, you know, continuationism, cessationism and all that, which is, we can leave that for another day. Uh, this is definitely coming from a period when um, indisputably prophets would have been um, in place and, and functional in the church um, in the late first, early second century, no matter what one's position is. So that's not far-fetched that he's cast himself as a prophet. And then it makes uh, us scratch our head and ask us, well, was he a true prophet? And if so, why would we accept this as canonical? Is he a false prophet? Why would anybody accept this as canonical? You know, it brings up all kinds of questions. So I prefer to say, you know, this is something like a, I want to call it, call it an oral performance. It's sort of um, an allegory like Pilgrim's Progress. And I have a hunch that the original audience would have taken it as something like a Christian um staged performance in a sense oral performance is the term that we use a lot uh that present packaging christian truths in a in an entertaining and engaging way that's as far as as i'm willing to say well you know miller jumped right into the second vision maybe you could walk us through actually give us a forty thousand foot vision one vision two vision three vision four just walk us through the visions the kind of core elements um, you know, people who are watching the show for the first time, they've probably, because they're theology nerds like we are, they've probably heard about this book, but don't know a ton of information about it. Can you maybe just walk us through some of the, the core themes of those visions? Yeah. So it's basic. The whole book itself is, is basically three sections, the visions, the mandates, and then the parables or similitudes. Uh, there are five, well, four, let's just say four and a half, but five visions. Um, vision one is kind of um, Hermes's exposure of his sinfulness. It's kind of the idea we can get into that some more. Vision two um, is uh, this strong emphasis on the the judgment that's about to come, the great tribulation, you need to repent. You have this theme of repentance. Uh, vision three is this vision of this tower 
very famous Imogen, Shepherd of Hermeson, makes a cameo appearance later on in the parables of this tower being built with these stones, and it represents the building of the church. And you better repent and be part of the building before uh, it's completed. Otherwise, you're going to be um, suffering um, persecution or tribulation. Vision four is this vision of a beast that this monster that appears that represents the coming great tribulation and Hermes is able to escape it because of his faith. And, and that becomes a symbol for those who are repentant and ready and not double-minded will be able to escape the coming tribulation. And then vision five transitions from this lady who has been showing Hermes the visions, the lady church to the shepherd. And this is why now this is called the shepherd of Hermes. From that point on, this rugged looking shepherd leads Hermes through a series of mandates, you know, dealing with um, self-control, innocence, truthfulness, uh, even false prophets and true prophets, basic Christian instruction from the first to second century, and then transitions to uh, a number of parables, um, parables of two cities, uh, elm and vine, uh, representing the rich and the poor and their interaction in the church. Um, the tower appears again in similitude nine. So there's all these illustrations that are that are given at a deeper level. And that's kind of the 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 basic overview. So five visions, twelve mandates, and then ten um uh similitudes or parables. Now there's sort of a climax uh in vision number three, uh, specifically um Hermes's description of the tower image and its significance of the state of the church. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, in that whole vision, you have um, Hermes watching, you know, the, the woman takes him and shows him this tower being built in this water. The water represents uh, baptism. It's how you have to pass through the water to enter into the church. Uh, and all of these stones are of a different character. And some of them are rolling away and burning. And that represents people who are fleeing the church. Uh, some of them are really coming close to to the edge of the water, but not going into the water. And these are people who are uh, hesitant to join, uh, to accept the faith and join the church. There's some who fit in and you can't even see the seams where they were joined in. Those are, you know, the, the pure at heart and this kind of thing. So, so you have this uh, spectrum of people and the stones, which represent people and their relationships to the church. And so you definitely have this strong emphasis on, um, the corporate nature of the faith, not merely just this personal conviction, but how that personal conviction affects your relationship to the church as um, this, this corporate body, which is um, necessary to be part of in order to uh, experience the, the life of salvation. So yeah, and, and toward the end there, it's, um, you know, it leaves the audience wondering, which stone am I? That's the idea. There's always a, so what? And the so what is which stone am I? Am I fleeing from the church? Am I at the edge and hesitant? Am I, you know, cracked and needing repair? Or, or what? What is my relationship to the church? Well, maybe you could That's, talk to us a little bit there about the the ethics <laughs> that you mentioned just now, because it seems as if I mean, I'm I'm not familiar with tons of prophetic books that have been collected and preserved throughout church history that were written and inspired by demonic activity, encouraging people to live holy. Uh, at least I'm not I'm aware of them. Maybe, maybe they Man, exist. Man, asking a guy from they DTS. Yeah, <laughs> if, I, if I was going to, if I was going to write a false prophet book, I'd be like, Hey guys, have fun. Okay. Um, like just live wild and crazy. So I, that's how I assumed things would work. So 
as I'm as I'm you know hearing you as I'm reading your commentary on on Hermas, it, it talks a lot about you know wickedness and eschatology this end time day and living pure and holy. Can you maybe just like hit on some of the the ethics, the sexual ethic, the uh, the immorality and wickedness and those kinds of issues that come up in th- this book, are they consistent with the kind of Judeo-Christian ethic? Is there anything in there that seems maybe, uh, uh, I mean, you mentioned already, right? Like it's, it's the, the book of adultery. Is there, is this a, is this a historically consistent with the Christian ethic? Is there a few areas that it falters in? Yeah, I don't know of anywhere it would be inconsistent. It's um, it, if you take a look at the very literal, the two ways of of Didache, um, chapters one through six, uh, and read. You know, this is what Christians are committing to in baptism. Here's what we're avoiding. Uh, it tracks exactly with that. The virtues and the vices that it is encouraging and discouraging are classic Christian instruction that anybody who had been baptized into this faith would have would have agreed with. So you're absolutely right. This is absolutely Christian. And as far as that goes, and theologically, I don't see any, it's not, it's not a theological treatise. So we're not expecting to have every, you know, every doctrine covered in, in precise um, detail. But as far as the ethic, it's, um, I could see why this would be appealing for, for instruction. It does tend to sound, especially to, let's just be honest, Western American 21st century ears. It sounds legalistic. It sounds like somebody who's, um, you know, trying to work for their salvation or whatever. Uh, that could be effect of its rigorous approach to some things like, you know, taking your baptismal pledge seriously and living a repentant life. It's, it's very serious about that. It could be an effect of uh, maybe we are too have gone too far in the other direction, right? It sounds legalistic because we're bordering on licentiousness in our own church contexts. I'm going to just leave that out there. Well, sure. I mean, that's that you're basically saying that this is going to be this is interpretive. This is what the first century would have believed and acted yeah. and practiced in relation to the Christian scriptures. That that makes sense to me. Yeah. So. I remember reading a book by, I think it was Larry Hurtudo. It's like the, yeah. oh gosh, what is it? Destruction of the Gods or something like that, where he talks about when you became a Christian, um, if you were a Gentile coming to the faith, then you were basically swearing off your whole social life. That becoming a Christian was a, a gigantic shift for most Gentiles because it meant like, you know, the local deities, you couldn't participate in their worship. You couldn't go to the the normal feasts that were customary for everybody in your town, all of your family, all of your friends. I and mean, you're, you're kind of walking away from all of those things by saying yes to Christ. Uh, I, I would imagine that this falls right in line with that. If anything, that's probably instructing um, Hertudo's view of things. I imagine he's he's pulling from Hermas on some level to, to learn about the early church. Is that Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's the case. And it's... um. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's true with uh, Jewish believers as well. They were, you know, leaving one community and then embracing this other. But it was a, it was a community that the, the Christian ethic, the early Christian ethic and the, and the ethic of the synagogue was, was very, very similar anyway. Um, so that wasn't a major transition. But you're talking about leaving your, your pagan temples, leave, leaving your deities, leaving all of these kinds of rites and rituals, and feasts and these kinds of things that, that held that greco-roman culture together and you're going into very foreign foreign territory but yeah i would say it's um 
um, yeah, that's definitely the case. I didn't have anything else, Josh. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I asked my, my question. My, my bad. Okay, so we, we were doing this back and forth question. I wasn't sure if that was his question or not. Uh, I'd be curious, uh, how does the Shepherd of Hermas address specifically the kind of Greco-Roman uh, ideas you mentioned in your book of reputation, honor, uh, in contrast with like uh, Christian standards of, of those things? I, I'd be interested and in, in, in excited for you to kind of speak on that. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, with regard to social status, that's one thing that comes in, you know, in honor, shame societies, you know, the honor and I don't want to get into that. You could spend a whole uh, hour on that and I could give you authors you could talk to much better at this than I am with honor, shame societies and cultures. But there's a it's a matter of um, status, right, in relationships and in society. Uh, some are of a certain status and those things are far less uh, flexible than they are in our Western cultures. Um, and frankly, many of us don't care about them as much as, as some cultures, but back in the day that, that was a big deal. And so, you know, Hermes himself points out that he had been a slave who had been liberated and now, you know, he's married and he has developed some status as a, uh, landowner and, you know, that's being threatened by the, by his children who are absolute hellions apparently and a wife that is not much better and it's threatening you know it's bringing shame to his family and threatening his status um and those kinds of things so i think there's that there's also the the rich poor that comes up periodically in the shepherd of hermas and the relationship in the church between the rich and the poor and what's what's interesting is it gives us a little insight in that in the church the church was not at this time attempting to spend a lot of capital in erasing uh, status, statuses and uh, those kinds of things. But what it was doing was it was redeeming these statuses and taking away in some sense any kind of shame that may have been related to this. It's it's actually redeeming the idea of the poor person who is coming uh, with this pure and simple faith, praying for the rich who are providing for the needs of the poor and creating this symbiotic relationship. So it is, uh, there have been several studies on Shepherd of Hermas and its relationship to that Greco-Roman, you know, shame uh, and honor kind of st uh, culture, and it would probably make a lot more sense in some of those circles. So I've got kind of two questions I think that are wrapped up into one. Um, you know, it, it talks about these supernatural events that he's experiencing, right? He's taken to, he's caught up in a vision, and in the vision, he's carried by the spirit into a region that doesn't have roads. Um, how does the book itself interpret that experience? And then how are we to interpret that? Uh, or how would the early church have interpreted the, those experiences? Would they say, yes, he had a real vision, uh, or whoever was writing this had some sort of vision or he's, I, I don't know. I'm not even sure like how to interpret those actions or those, those stories. Yeah, he, he, so we really have a, three options. Um, he actually had real visions from God and was transported in this ecstatic state to some, you know, roadless place. You know, you can't get there from here. Um, B, he, he made this up. It's a, it's a device and he intended it to be a device in his audience, understood it as a device, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress or even C.S. Lewis, you know, in his, um, 
the Great Divorce. If you've ever read that, one of my yeah, favorites. Yeah, I've read it. I love he, it. He's framing it, right? He's framing it as I was sitting at my desk and I fell into this sleep and this these kinds of things happened. And it never really happened, but that's the, fr- the literary frame. But we understand that, that that's a, uh, a device. Or um, he's just totally lying and trying to deceive people into thinking he had visions and dreams that he didn't have. I guess a fourth option is he's kind of lost his mind and these are rantings of a, a let's just say a lunatic. Um, that last one is not a, viable because if you read this thing, it is way too internally co- coherent and consistent to be the product of somebody who just kind of rambles like like I am right now. Uh, but the <laughs> So I tend to think it's in the middle I think it is he's casting uh, these moral principles and things that he's trying to get across in a way, I would put it in the genre of early Christian fiction, in a sense, maybe the early Christian novel. Let me throw this out there. Uh, I think he's probably, you understand that both Jews and Christians were had to swear off the theater you couldn't go to the theater for a number of reasons. Number one, it was very lewd. Number two, there were idols and those kinds of things, the things that went on just in the audience. It was just unacceptable. And I think that in many ways, Shepherd of Hermes reads a lot like uh, a staged satire in a sense, kind of poking fun at himself, poking fun at certain elements in the church or in the society, but with a very sobering moral purpose. So it's probably and more I playful to- than insulting. Is that right? playful to a point like on the one end he's kind of uh carrying you along entertaining you and then all of a sudden he comes you know slaps you across the, the head with this call to repentance right and i yeah. think that that's what's going on i think it's an oral performance maybe a one-man show so to speak but it's as close as a church could get to a staged play without being accused of um crossing over into you know the theatrical so that's kind of where i've landed tentatively uh, so so you'd say that i have a a debate on this one i think it would be interesting to pull out uh sorry josh i i have to ask this well you know we we have room in our uh pneumatology for there to be prophetic experiences that should not be considered canonical shouldn't be considered scripture like there's they're lesser uh lesser authoritative uh, lesser on their level of authority i guess you could say do you think that's possible that's what's going on here as well is this for me? Yeah. Yes, I think that's possible too. Um, and again, uh, I mentioned you know the the cessationist continuationist question is irrelevant here because we're talking about a late first early second century document, right? So it and and we have clear examples of prophetic utterances and visions and things that are recorded. Ignatius of Antioch and Epistle of Barnabas talks about this and uh, clear examples of this. So it would not be necessarily out of um out of outside of people's expectations that uh Hermes would have been one of these prophets who has a message for his you know local church community um there are some scholars who think that the seeds of this were real prophetic uh visions and things related to pro- um persecutions etc that occurred or were about to occur in Rome, and they use that to kind of date the elements. And then through later revision, uh, it was, you know, based on a true story, all right? You, you ever watch one of these movies where it's like, based on true events? Well, the true events, it's, so is Sound of Music, 
technically based on true events, but you know, none of us believe that that these kids were walking around the countryside singing songs to a full orchestra. So something that, that there may be kernels of of a historic prophetic experience, but then they've been kind of universalized into morality plays in a sense. That's possible too. Yeah, I think uh, to Michael's point, we would just say, you know, there's probably teaching that happened in the first century that wasn't considered canon. Uh, in the same way, there's probably prophecy that took place in the New Testament that wasn't can like Philip's daughters. Mm-hmm. It would be, yeah. I think, an inconsistent position to think that they're laying an infallible foundation for all people everywhere through prophecy, but are forbidden to teach, preach, and exercise authority over men. Like it, it probably there was probably some kind of dual system of authority where, hey, women are allowed to prophesy. There's specific instruction on them prophesying, but that doesn't mean that their prophecy is canon. And Paul kind of goes out of his way to say. If those who who you are among you think you're spiritual, realize the words that I'm writing are the very words of God. So he tells the prophets, you know, follow these rules because I'm like what I'm saying is God's word. Simmer down so now. It, it seems as if there was like <laughs> so. So for those to to be in in you know who might be unfamiliar with this kind of position, um, and this isn't to say this is Dr. Spiegel's position. I'm not trying to get him in trouble at DTS or anywhere else. So you guys realize these are the views of Remnant Radio, okay? Uh, is, is we're just saying that it would make sense for this to be plausible. I'm, I'm curious, you, you mentioned, like I could totally see like almost like a satirical piece. Like I watch comedians all the time make jokes, but they're actually making points, right? Like they're, they're yeah. joking about abortion, but they're really actually making points about abortion. Like it's really yeah. stupid that you guys are doing this, you know? Um, I, I remember a, a guy who said something about, you know, oh yeah, it's your body. It's your choice. Sure. But when we get to heaven and God's like, why'd you kill all those babies? And we were like, whoa, that was her choice. You know, like he's joking about it, but at the same time, he's actually making a point like this is not good. This is actually murder. Like you shouldn't be doing this. So not to again, entangle you into another political discussion, but I'm curious what about this reads like comedy reads like satire. What about this feels playful you know I, I i read stories in the bible about like burning bushes talking or donkeys talking or you know throwing a stick into a body of water and the axe head float and i read all of those as like or eutychus dying yeah that's the funniest story some fat yeah. guy got stabbed in the bible and he was so fat that his body swallowed the sword and he defecated on his <laughs> absolutely <throat>. my favorite <laughs> story in the bible yes yeah, i mean yeah exactly yeah. there are ridiculous stories you know um Anyway, so all that to say that like um, what you're you're a scholar, so you're reading this stuff. You you can pick up on some of these cues that I can't, I can't quite see. Is it the language? Is it the way it's written? Uh, is there is there anything that's tipping you know your your hand or your scale to say this is a wild prophetic experience or this is uh, you know a satirical? What is it specifically that's pushing you in the satire direction? Yeah, especially early on in the in the interactions between Hermas and the lady who represents the church, there is a very clear back and forth banter that's going on. Um, essentially, you know, she's calling Hermas periodically a blockhead. You know, he's he's so foolish and so this and that. And and it's really interesting because if Hermas is the author, you're seeing something that is not typically seen in in these kind of autobiographical writings where the the author is um, demonstrating this self-deprecation, this pointing, uh, making fun of himself through this this interaction. Uh, usually when people tell stories, they're the heroes of their own stories. You know, that's the, the idea. So it's very similar to Jonah in some sense, in which 
if you read Jonah, and, and I remember back in Hebrew class, you know, we had to work through Jonah in Hebrew, and, and there are a lot of word plays in there that are, you can tell that this is a prophet here who is looking back as on his experience and almost pointing out his stupidity and his frailty and, and, and making fun of himself in a somewhat playful way. And Hermes does the same thing. And, and there's so these, these elements of the banter, there's the, the elements of um, things that are unexpected, uh, things that are just... Uh, so I'm not saying this is a comedy, but it is... I, I, I use the term satire. If you've ever read um, some of the Greek satires, as Greek satirical plays, they do this. They give, they, they characterize and, and use personification for certain principles or, or movements or fictionalize certain political figures or whatever. And I think Hermes is doing that, but he's in a sense lampooning uh, elements of the church itself. That's gotcha. what I see. Yeah, it's helpful. And you've got a a person in the in the visions that uh, is sort of represented as the accuser, Rhoda. Uh, how does she yeah. connect with the whole uh, ex nihilo thing that you brought up earlier? Yeah. And what are the implications so, of that? Yeah. So you have the um, in the begin in the first vision and in mandate four is, or mandate one. Sorry, I don't know why I said four. Mandate one. You have this strong emphasis on God is the creator of everything. Who created everything out of nothing, and he's. He's glorifying God as, as the creator and all of these things. Um, and he's in this, you know, in vision one, he's in this great, you know, spiritual state. He considers himself super spiritual. And then he sees this woman, Rhoda, who had been his, um, his owner at one point, who had freed him years earlier. And she was so beautiful and of such poise. And he reached into the Tiber River. She was bathing or whatever and helped her out of the water and uh and thought had this passing thought of man i wish i had a wife like this i would be so happy and a little bit later she suddenly as he's kind of caught up in this vision into this arid place uh rhoda is appearing in heaven taken up to condemn him and that that itself is funny in a in a sense you know um here he's taking her up out of the water now she's up in heaven why are you there? I was brought up so I could condemn you about this this fleeting thought that goes through his mind. So on the one hand, he's he's clearly a Christian glorifying God with his life and trying. And he has this passing little thought, doesn't even act on it. And then she says it's his grave sin. And I think the idea there is um, look at the, the extremes that God goes to to call out this this imperfection, this impurity in the mind, just in the mind. Of Hermes, and the idea is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If this kind of fleeting thought is so bad for a, for a righteous one, a person of God, how much more all of the muck that the the average Christians in Rome, including the leaders, are guilty of that we see kind of coming out. So it sort of sets mm -hmm. the tone for that you have lowered the bar too far on your daily uh, life of righteousness and. Vision one right away raises this bar, uh, literally up to the heavens. It's it's um, sounds like Jesus's uh, Sermon on the Mount in a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, tell me about a little bit about Vision two and the the call to repentance for both believer and non-believer, and the place for repentance for both believers and non-believers, as as taught in Hermas. Yeah, looming over visions two, three, and four is this impending, this coming 
um, judgment, uh, great tribulation, vision two calls it this tribulation that's coming. Uh, and is really saying, look, if you're not and the sin here is double mindedness, right? So for the believer, you, you claim to be a Christian, but you're living a certain way, you're living world, you got one foot in each of the worlds and you need to pull yourself together, repent of your double mindedness and have, you know, spiritual fortitude, because if you're not, if you don't repent, well, you still have this opportunity this day. Um, the judgment's going to become, and you're com- becoming, and you're going to be subject to that, uh, implying that there's some kind of um, escape, rescue, preservation, or something, some benefit for being all repented up if you're ready when the day of judgment comes. So there's that, and he's calling that primarily to the believers who have sort of backslid, but also calling to the the heathen he uses the term the heathen or the pagans or the gentiles who are uh totally unbelievers they also have an opportunity but it seems like um he's suggesting that there's a there's an opportunity for the christian who is backslidden but and this is developed in visions three and four as well that that those who are uh heathen will have an additional period of time um during the judgment or whatever to to come to repentance as well. So that there's a sense in which we're going to be responsible more for those of us who have been given more illumination and more understanding of spiritual things. We have deeper responsibility to respond to that, which also sounds biblical. Hmm. There's also a, a shift in the tone of, of vision too, uh, with an urgent message about the coming Perugia. How does that shape the narrative? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he said, he, there's a, this little book that, uh, um, Hermes is, is, here's the words of this little book and it's very, very, very frightening, but also very encouraging. And if you're a believer in a good relationship with Christ and the church, uh, the, the coming judgment is a, um, is good news to you because it means that the age to come is about to begin. But if you're unrepentant, double-minded, then it's it's frightening, uh, scary words to you, and um, it's basically you know the the same message of coming judgment is going to sound different to different ears, and that's kind of how that's functioned. The parousia, meaning the coming of Christ as judge and king, it's uh, referred to the second coming that in that sense. Uh, tell me about the I want to know about the the older lady that comes and she gives instructions to like church leaders uh specifically what is she instructing them and does this give us any kind of insight into what church leadership looked like if this is kind of written satirically against church leadership Mm -hmm. then she's probably calling out something that's going on in that day can you speak to us a little bit about that yeah she calls you know she's calling in general people to um uh, be responsible shepherds she has examples uh they have examples in the book of of unworthy shepherds, bad shepherds versus good shepherds, people who are taking their responsibilities seriously. So that's one thing. One thing that um, the uh, Vision 2 talks about, you know, making a copy of this book. Hermes is responsible for copying this book and um, giving a copy to Clement, who is to share it with those churches abroad, because that's his responsibility. And most would identify this as Clement of Rome, the author of First Clement, who would have been what we call the presiding elder bishop of Rome at the time. And then he says, 
the elders of the church, plural, are to read this and instruct the people of the church. So that's their job. And then he says, along with you, Hermas is also supposed to um, instruct the church. And then also talks about giving a copy to Grapte, who is to instruct the widows and the orphans, or at least oversee that instruction of widows and orphans. And Grapte is actually uh, a female, a woman, who is responsible for teaching the widows and the orphans, most likely um, a reference to the office of a deaconess or ministra. So that is um, giving us a little insight into the way the church is organized, that they're given this responsibility to instruct about this coming judgment, which also lends us lends the leads us to the conclusion that um shepherd the, the hermes regarded himself as having some kind of authoritative message that was relevant to the church at the time uh and, and the message is he says not just for you but also to the leaders of the church as well so as well as to everybody in the church so these concentric circles of calling everybody um out of their double-mindedness so this is sort of a, a parallel, I guess, a, a question. Um, you see this in scripture a lot where, you know, certain events that Jesus did or even Pentecost itself and the outpouring of the spirit, it it, it uh, had a lot of Old Testament allusions, right? So there's significance in the very fact that he's on this mountain when he says X, Y, and Z. Um, in, in Hermas, you find him having a second vision in the same location exact year later. How does that contribute to yeah. the narrative? What's the message that's either being sent to Hermas or to those who read uh, the shepherd? Yeah, that's interesting. And there are some um, geographical indicators there, uh, certain things that, that people, elements of, of the natural order, et cetera, that people would have been familiar with in the vicinity of Rome. And there's really no question that this is primarily centered at Rome. At one point, it says he's walking on a road. He's on the road to Kumai. It just says, and so that's a, a road leading out of Rome, down the coast, heading to this this city, this town called Kumai. And that's significant because uh, in the ancient world at the time, the Kumayan oracle was a woman you could go to in a cave who was going to contact the gods for you. And, you know, you know the, the oracles, kind of like the oracle at Delphi, etc. And I think there's probably, in fact, later when he is asked, who do you think the woman is? He says, is it the oracle and, you know, or is it the Sybil, meaning the Sybil or the oracle or the Sybil and says, no, it's not the Sybil. And it kind of suggests that um, Hermes there is, and I'm just giving you one example of, of the question that you're asking. Hermes is uh, possibly either intentionally or unintentionally on his way to get wisdom or insight from a uh, less than Christian source. That could be mm. a, something that was being implied there, uh, that the original readers would have understood that. Uh, and by snatching him up again, you know, and the idea is uh, you've, you didn't heed my first vision a year ago, right? We're going to have to go through this again. You know, so he's kind of making very slow progress and he himself keeps kind of backsliding into this this condition of distrust or uncertainty or or seeking advice outside of the christian faith and um you know it's a you know you wouldn't need to the second vision if you had paid attention to the first that kind of idea so i think that there are things like that going on that are devices that that we could too quickly graze over 
Fantastic. Josh. Well, Dr. Spiegel, we're kind of at the part of the show where we've got to wrap things up. I want to encourage people to go pick up uh, Dr. Spiegel's book on The Shepherd of Firmus. You can go check it out. It'll be in the links of the description. We have it linked up there to Amazon, so it'll bring you right over to that page. You can pick it up, check it out if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, Dr. Spiegel, what would be kind of like closing thought? Like, What are like the, the core themes and nuggets of this that you'd want people to actually carry along with them? Like, uh, Just like you would with Pilgrim's Progress or uh, with Narnia, like what are these like core elements that you actually think this will be helpful for the average reader? Make a pitch for why they need to pick up the book and the commentary. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So pick up the commentary because it does have a fresh, new kind of fun translation of the book. So you don't have to have a book, a, com- a book on, on the side and the commentary. It has everything in, in one place and, and work through it. It's rewarding. Uh, give them a chance. Uh, use the commentary to kind of work through some of the sticky issues. But I think, you know, you see in Shepherd of Hermas, a church that was very serious about a life of repentance, a walking in the spirit, a life of faith and a virtue uh, that had an impact on their culture at the time. And I think that that's important for us today where we can become very distracted by a lot of ancillary discussions and forget that really, the life in the spirit is a walk is a life of walking in the fruit of the spirit, a life of faith. And I think that shepherd of Hermes reminds us of that. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Spiegel, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you love the content, you engage with more of it. Uh, there is a playlist uh, at the end of this video uh, of other content that Dr. Spiegel has done with us before on the program. Uh, and if you are new to the channel, make sure to hit the subscribe button, like the video, maybe share it around uh, if you've got a friend that would be interested in this kind of content. Uh, I'd love to have Dr. Spiegel back on to talk about the Dadake with us. I think that is something that uh, our audience is extremely interested in. So I think that will probably be on the calendar here pretty soon. So uh, make sure to subscribe and check out the newsletter so that when we do uh, interviews just like this, you get notified because we put all that kind of content up there on the newsletter, whether it's courses, conferences, videos that we're uploading, blogs, study guide material, all of that can be found in the newsletter and much, much more. So guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time. uh, And we will see you guys next Monday and Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.